Well, hey, I have a friend who was, well, he's a friend now. He didn't really start off as a friend. He started off as a student in our student ministry. And if you've ever been a part of student ministry, you'll kind of understand what I'm saying when I say that. He just kind of started off in my life as a pain in the butt. But over the years, we have become great friends. He's a little brother to me now. He, uh, he got a girlfriend, and we were all surprised at that. Just, you know, it's like, man, who would want to put up with him? But somebody did. And so they started dating. Their relationship got serious. They graduated college, and it was time to pop the big question. And this is a guy who was and really is one of the more premier wedding photographers, videographers in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And so he had seen he had seen it all. I mean, he had seen some ideas that were just, they made Pinterest look like it was just amateur. He saw some things that were straight out of the best rom-com you could imagine. And he took all of those things and it was like he was just taking notes. And so the big day came and he put all of those notes into work. See, most people, they will just buy their spouse or their future spouse, hopefully, if they say yes. Sometimes they don't. They say no. Most people will just buy their soon-to-be fiancé a ring. And at most, I think at most, what they will do is they will go and they will help design that ring. But he went above and beyond. He met with a jeweler. Not only did he design the ring, but he learned the craft, the trade of making a ring, of being a jeweler. He filmed a video of him with the jeweler making his hopefully soon-to-be wife's wedding ring. Now, gentlemen in the room, any, any of you guys do that? Anybody film a video of you making your wife's ring? Now, you, we go to the jewelry store and we pick it out because we're grown men and we don't have time for all that stuff. There's no way. We got to work, right? We got to pay for this ring. They're expensive. He pulled out all the stops. And then it goes, and it's time for him to propose to his girlfriend, hopefully soon to be fiance. Sure that her best friend gets her to this park that was, had significant meaning in their relationship, and she has no idea what's going on. He has multiple cameras set up all over the park. Remember, this guy is a videographer. He's going to film all of this stuff, and then he uploads it on YouTube, and it's titled, We Got Engaged, He He, and I was like, who, who titles a video, He He, at the end? I don't, you should be like, oh yeah, we got engaged, we're getting married, let's do this thing, but they got engaged, He He, and so... He set up cameras all over the park. He gets down on one knee, and he starts to tell her exactly how he feels about her. He starts to unload with all of these just words, dripping in romantic promises. And, and unfortunately for her, she did say yes. And so we are we're happy for him. We are praying for her. But in all of this, actions like that. When you combine those actions with the words that proceed in the proposal, you make great promises. Now, here's the deal for my buddy. He started off, he just dumped a truckload of love and, and good vibes into that marriage right off the bat. No one told him, he, you got to follow up with this stuff, man. Okay, so you just did everything you could possibly do, and you're never going to live up to this for the rest of your life. That is the fear, right? The fear is that you make all of these promises, and then you never follow through with it. When you do things that are that special, that are that important, that mean that much, you have to keep 
doing them. Not only are you making great promises, but great promises have to be fulfilled. What happens if he stops? Well, hopefully she gets wise enough and she doesn't marry him, right? What happens if he keeps it up, if he keeps fulfilling those great promises until they get married and then he stops, right? That's the guy that goes and he kills the buck and he puts it up on the wall and it's his trophy and he stops hunting. He's done it. He's got the trophy. He's got the wife and now his pursuit is over. Well, then their marriage will be miserable. We are called as men to pursue and love our wives just as much now, 20 years from now, as we were when we first met them and fell in love with them. He has to keep pursuing. He has made great promises. Great promises come with really big expectations, and expectations need to be fulfilled. We see this. We see this in God's word. We see this in Emmanuel, God with us. We see this in the coming king. We see a great truth this morning, and we will look at that today, that great promises require great fulfillment. Great promises require great fulfillment. And God makes many great promises throughout the book of Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, that put this whole proposal, this whole we got engaged, he he video, to shame. I'm talking grandiose promises that are life-changing, that are world-changing, that shape my eternity, that shape your eternity. And it all takes place so long, so far back from when Jesus was actually born. When you look at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is making these prophecies about Jesus 700 to 800 years before Jesus is ever born. That's what prophecy is. Basically, Isaiah is standing up on his tippy toes, and he's looking over the timeline, and he's saying all of these things will happen in the next 800 years, but after that, then this one event is going to happen, and he's kind of seeing what's going on. I don't know if you guys are really cool, and you go to concerts and stuff like that, and if you're really cool and really broke, and you can't afford a seat that's not on grass like me, but when you go to a concert, it's at a pavilion, you're at the back, you're in the grass, you're looking up, you can kind of see what's taking place on the stage. That's kind of what's going on for Isaiah with this prophecy. It's like he's at the very back, it's standing room only in this concert, and there's like a sheet of plastic in front of the stage. And he's kind of short, so he's having to like look over everybody, and he can see what's happening on that stage. He may not be able to make out exactly every detail of every face or of every lyric that is saying, but he can tell what is going on. And that is exactly what Isaiah is seeing 800 years into the future of where he is. He may not know the how, he may not know every detail to the what or the why, but he can see what's going on later little spoiler alert, we're going to get to Isaiah 53, and it's like that plastic sheet comes down, and he can see everything that is going on when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah, it gets me excited. If you can't tell, this book is incredible. Each and every one of the prophecies that Isaiah makes, most of them, around half of them, have been fulfilled. And fulfilled prophecy is a big deal because fulfilled prophecy is extremely rare. Now, I used an example last Advent season, and I completely butchered it, so I get redemption this morning, so I'm going to see if I can make it right this time. But the chances of just eight prophecies being fulfilled are the same chances of marking one silver dollar 
taking the state of Texas, covering it in two feet deep of silver dollars, hiding that one mark silver dollar at some depth within the two feet at some point in the state, and then taking a random person, blindfolding them, spinning spinning them around in circles. I don't know why we're spinning them around in circles. They're not going to find it anyway. And then sending them out somewhat unnecessarily dizzy to go find that marked silver dollar. And then guess what? They find it. Now that's just eight prophecies being fulfilled. There are 46 about Jesus in the book of Isaiah that are fulfilled when it comes to his first coming. There are 80 when it comes to his second coming. The article, the mathematical probability that Jesus is the Christ, says if one were to conceive 50 specific prophecies about a person in the future whom one would never meet, just what is the likelihood that this person will fulfill all 50 of these predictions? How much less would this likelihood be if 25 of these predictions were about what other people would do to him and were completely beyond that person's control? For example, how does one arrange to be born into a specific family? How does one arrange to be born in a specified city in which their parents don't actually live? How does one arrange their own death? And specifically by crucifixion with two others and then arrange to have their executioners gamble for their clothes? How does one arrange to be betrayed in advance? How does one arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs on the two victims on either side, but not to them? How does one escape from a grave and appear to people after having been killed? Indeed, it may be possible for someone to fake one or two of the messianic prophecies, but it would be impossible for any one person to arrange and fulfill all of these prophecies. Ladies and gentlemen, we see all of these prophecies fulfilled in our King Jesus. And today, we're just going to look at two of those. One's really just a bonus because I got excited when I was writing the sermon. I was like, we're right here. Let's just kind of take a little detour. It's going to be great. We're, gonna, we're all going to love it. It's going to be a good time. <laughs> Ultimately, in prophecy, what we see is when God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. We see the promise that God makes in Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 6, the first half of it, part A. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And then we see that a son would be given is fulfilled in Luke Chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. For unto us a child is born. How does the covenant-fulfilling work of God come about? How are the Mosaic and Davidic covenants fulfilled? How does the victorious messianic king come about? How does God enter into creation? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. This is God's gift to the world. He is male. 
He is of royal descent, and he will reign, and he will rule forever and ever. Isaiah, this is the bonus part. This is just because I'm excited about it. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it gets a little bit more specific. Not only would a child be born, a son would be born, but the virgin birth is promised. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, remember, this is the back of the lawn. The whole concert's taking place up there. But by the way, the concert takes place 800 years from now. 800 years later, this is fulfilled exactly. The virgin birth is fulfilled. Matthew 1, 23 through 25. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Yes, Joseph and Mary, with a little help from an angel telling them exactly what they needed to do, this prophecy was fulfilled. But what does the fulfillment of this prophecy specifically mean for us? It means that Jesus... It's born. He has come. He is in the earth. God is with us in Emmanuel. And he is not just with us being fully God, but he is fully human and fully God. This means that he has been conceived of by the Holy Spirit in a virgin mother. And being fully God, it doesn't mean that he was like God. It means that he is God. It didn't just mean that Jesus had a really close relationship with God. It means that he was him. Jesus and God are one and the same, but they are different. Jesus is God the Son, and he was with God from the very beginning. We see that in John 1.1, and then he would become a man by being born into the world in the gift and the form of a baby. But he wasn't just fully God. See, if he was fully God, you couldn't have killed him. He couldn't have given his life as a sacrifice for us, but he was fully man as well, and in being fully man, this means that he can relate to us in our every struggle. This means he knows exactly what it means to be human. This means that he has experienced every single emotion that you and I could feel. This means that he's been on every mountaintop, he's been every valley low, and he has experienced it to its utmost. Fully God, fully man. But that's not all that Isaiah 9-6 reads. That was Isaiah 9-6a. We were about to get into Isaiah 9-6a and b, and we see that the promise of God with us came with the description. The promise of God with us came with the description. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's break this down. The government shall be upon his shoulder. This means that his people are delivered because he accepts the burden of governing them. He accepts the burden of leadership. He accepts the burden of ruling. And the government, does it say that the government will be set on their shoulders? And they'll be arguing about what animal they're going to vote for, whether it's a donkey or an elephant or some weird party in the middle that's just kind of trying to distract everybody? No. It's not on us. Thank goodness. The government he will set up is on him. And he will govern us. But what kind of governor will he be? We get four answers to that question. 
four answers to the rest of this verse. And his name shall be called. At this point, we go from having a king and a governor with a question of what will he be like to knowing exactly what that king, exactly what that governor would rule like. And the first answer to that question is the fulfilled promise of Jesus is that he is a wonderful counselor. And in being a wonderful counselor, if you are taking notes today, write this out to the side. It means that he is wise, right? This Hebrew for wonderful, this Pele, translates closest to the word for supernatural, and it's used 80 times referring to the Lord and his work, meaning that his wisdom is far above anything that we have ever seen, anything that we have received from counsel from somebody else. It goes above and beyond. This means that it is extraordinary. It is miraculous. It is greatly contrasted with the unwise rulers of the day. You see Isaiah, as he is making these prophecies, yes, he is getting a vision from the Lord of what would happen seven to 800 years until that point, but there have been some bad leaders on the throne. See Isaiah, he is writing this book, this major prophet of Isaiah, and he is writing it to the bad leadership, the bad kings in Israel. And he's saying, hey guys, listen up. Your leadership is terrible. And because it's terrible, we've got to get this train back on the track. We've got to get this thing corrected. We've got to start leading well. We've got to start following Yahweh again. And he is comparing the wonderful counseling, the great supernatural wisdom of this Emmanuel, of this God with us, to King Ahaz, a descendant of King David, who is led poorly. And he's contrasting it also, and his people would have known, to even the superior earthly wisdom of King Solomon. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have been obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when it comes to God's great counsel, his wonderful counsel, when it comes to his wisdom and his will, God takes counsel within himself, within the perfection of his own will before he ever actually relates to us. And then he counsels us according to his will. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 is, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? This means that his counsel cannot be undone. It means that he is the greatest of all counselors. It means that no one is even worthy to question it. That there is no one that would be wiser than him. And this is how he will govern. Psalm 73, verse 24, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. This shows us that in our lives, until we reach the finish line and go to be with him in glory, his counsel is what will get us to the finish line. He outqualifies any counselor that you could ever pay money to go see at an hourly rate. And his counsel is not something that you could pay for financially, but there was a price that had to be paid, and that price was his life to put us back in right relationship with God and put us in relationship with Jesus. And in that relationship, we receive counsel from him. And again, after that, after being guided by him in the ups and the downs, the mountains and the valleys, we go to be with him. So my question for you this morning, church family, in the troubles of life, have you taken your trouble to the wonderful counselor? Have you really taken all that stress, all that anxiety, all that fear, 
all of those insecurities, have you taken that and laid it at the feet of the wonderful counselor, the only one that can actually help you get through it, the only one that can actually help you to get rid of it, the only one that can actually put you back together after it? I think a lot of times as Christians, we surround ourselves with each other and we go to each other with our things, with our troubles that need counseling. And we don't ever go to the great counselor, the wonderful counselor himself. We're called to take it to him. He is the wonderful counselor. His wisdom is wiser than anyone you could look to the left and to the right and see. Second way that he will govern. The fulfilled promise of Jesus is that he will be a mighty God, that he is strong. And what this does is it speaks to the person and the power of Jesus, and this demands the closeness of Jesus to God. Hebrews 1, verses 2 through 3 say, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir over all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In this we see that Jesus is God. And in being God, he possesses all of God's power. All of God the Father is in God the Son. Now, yes, they are separate, but they are the same. They are each other, but they are not each other. And it's a very confusing dance that the Holy Trinity does. I'm not going to try to explain all that today. But we see that the power of God and the imprint of God is on Jesus. Not someone that became a God, but someone that was there from the beginning with him. So how powerful, how powerful is Jesus? If Jesus has the power of God, if he is mighty God, this means that the universe, as we see in Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, the universe was created through him. We also see that John 1, 1. Again, not only was it created through him, but he upholds it. He holds it together. Every fiber of your being, every worry, Every victory, every loss, every ounce of grief, every ounce of joy, he is holding that together. And that's just the unseen things. Look at the rest of the universe. Jesus is upholding it. He's powerful enough to cleanse sin. He is powerful enough to be tempted with the same temptations. Remember, fully man, fully God, the same temptations, the same struggles that we come against, but instead of falling into them and giving up, giving in to sin, he was victorious over them. And then he takes the cross. And on the cross, he's a perfect sacrifice. As a perfect sacrifice, he not only gives his life for us in our place so that we could be made right, so that we could receive his righteousness, but he makes it all right. In his power, he has victory over sin. He has victory over death and victory over the enemy, and that is more power than we can ever comprehend. I remember as a young man, a junior in high school, we went on a mission trip to Mexico, Piedras Negras, and we were going to build homes. And this was just an awesome time. I got to hang out with my youth pastor. I got to hang out with my buddies. I got to swing a hammer, sometimes at them, sometimes at nails. Sometimes I got to use power tools throughout the day. It was a good time. But I remember we got back to the hotel one night, and I was, again, I was a junior in high school. I'd been lifting some weights. I was feeling, feeling pretty fine about myself. And I thought, this is it. This is the moment that I take our youth pastor down. Now, 
for most youth pastors, that probably wouldn't be too hard. But for our youth pastor, he was about 6'5", 365. Um, it wasn't all muscle, but there was a lot of muscle there. And I remember waiting for him to come back into our, our hotel room that night. And I was kind of, I was lurking in the shadows. And I waited, and he opened the door, and he walked in. And I just, for a split second, can you smell what the rock is cooking right now? And I came off that high rope, and I was going to put a 12 o'clock elbow right in his back, but I was also not a very small person, so of course he heard me. I was probably giggling the whole time. He turns around, catches me midair, throws me against the wall, and then I fall into the bed. That was like early 2000s. You couldn't go to jail for that stuff then. We were in another country, not that he would have, but (laughs) student ministry doesn't look the same these days. It's a little softer. Maybe who I am, that's all right. In that moment, I was humbled. In that moment, at my most powerful, I felt powerless. And I hope that when we look at God, we see his power. We see how absolutely powerful he is. Not that he would catch us midair, throw us into a wall as we come, get scraped off of a bed to go to dinner later that night. But that we would be in awe of his power. That we would say, man, that is my God. Not only is he holding me together, but he is holding everything around me together, and I can trust in him. And so my question for us as a church is, have we experienced the mighty power of God in our lives? If we haven't, keep an eye out. Keep an eye out before he does catch you and throw you into a wall and show you how powerful he is. I hope he doesn't do that, though. The third fulfillment of the promise of Jesus is that he is an everlasting father. And in being an everlasting father, it means that he is caring. This is the relationship of Jesus to his subjects, and this is kind of two different routes that we take here. It's that, one, he is everlasting. And this is the answer to Israel and their longing for a king. They had had this episodic stage of having judges, having to deliver them. They would follow Yahweh for a little while, and then they would go back into their own sin, and then they would have to be delivered by another judge. They had had king after king that were just terrible. They had King David, and things were looking really good with him, so good that God said, hey, the Messiah, he's going to come from your line. But he had some sons that were knuckleheads. He had some sons that tried to kill him, tried to usurp his throne. Some things were not going very well in Israel until this point where you have King Ahaz and things are just, you got to fire that head coach if you want a winning record. They had to get somebody else in there. And so he is making a promise. We have a final permanent solution, Israel, and that is in the Messiah. And that is that he will govern and he will be an everlasting father. This means that he rules and he reigns over eternity. But he is not just everlasting. He is fatherly in his nature, in his attitude towards us. God the Father, God the Son, different, one and the same, yet different. Different responsibilities, but Jesus in his attitude towards us, still fatherly. John 14, 18 through 20 shows us that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus is fatherly towards us, because it is through him that we have been adopted into the family of God. 
Our eternity is taken care of by being adopted into God's family because of the work of Jesus on the cross. But he is not just fatherly in his attitude towards us. We can break this down a little bit more. Psalm 103, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this speaks of his care for us, but also his discipline for us. There is a care for a father that says, no matter what it takes, I will love these kids. I will be here to protect these kids. I will be here to provide for these kids. When they have their worst days, I will take my sleeve and I will wipe the snotty tears off of their faces. In the best days, I will be here to blow out birthday candles and eat all the cake, too much cake, and help open presents. And as soon as wrapping paper touches the floor, I'll make sure that's in the trash can. That's what being a caring father looks like. But being a caring father also means that you're disciplinary. We're not called as dads to be best friends. We're called to be dads. We're called to be fathers. We're called to be parents. And sometimes that means you've got to get a little deep with your voice. Girls, listen up. Get out of the street. Six cars waiting to get down the street. Just get your scooter and get up here. Hey, get to the side of the road. You don't want anything to happen to them. You want them to be safe. So it speaks of his care. This speaks of his discipline. Certainly, I remember a lot of discipline, especially when it came to my little brother's safety growing up with my dad. My dad did a great job of keeping my little brother alive. Thank you, dad. He's a good uncle now. He's really coming through. But I also remember the care of my dad. And I remember the first house that Rachel and I ever bought, it was built in 1963. The original family moved into it. They didn't move out of that house. They didn't change a thing about that house except a lot of decorations until me and Rachel moved into that house. And it was cheaper because it needed to be renovated. Uh, Fixer Upper was really big on HGTV. I, I kind of self-identified as Chip Gaines for a while. Uh, it was demo day in our house. And I knew that if I was going to be a good husband, if I was one day going to be a good dad, I had to get this thing into tip-top shape. Well, you start doing demolition, and eventually your wife's got to move into that house. And just husbands, typically, wives, moms, they, they want to live in a house that has floors. I knew pretty quick I was in over my head, and I knew that I could call out to my dad, and he would show up. And not only did he show up when he was needed, he showed up 30 minutes early. I was still asleep. He showed up with donuts. It was awesome every single Sunday, and he would help work on the projects of that house until it was time to wrap up, clean up, and then go home, and he would be back that next Saturday. No greater love, no greater feeling than a father who looks after his son, than a father who looks after his children, and that is exactly what we have in Jesus. When we are in over our heads, we have that in Jesus. Not only will he help us put the floors in, he'll help us take out the commodes, put new toilets in there. Commodes, that's a southern word. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. It came through. I tried to fight it. We have a loving Father in Jesus. So my question to you is, have you experienced that love of the Father in Jesus? Fourth and final fulfillment of this part of how he would govern is that he is a prince of peace. The fulfilled promise of Jesus is that he would be a prince of peace. So what kind of peace does he bring? Is this like Woodstock, hippie stuff? Like what's going on here? Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. That's 
dinner for a lion. And the little child shall leave them. Nope, not my kids. The cow shall bear, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. This lion, he just went vegan because of this peace. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Heck no. I was on a hike the other day. I saw a little hole in the ground. I just felt like a snake lived in there, and I just skipped over it real quick. Didn't care how big that snake was. Only good snake's a dead snake. My kid's not going anywhere near this thing. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Again, absolutely not. They shall not hurt or destroy. What is, what is it? What is it? What brings about this peace that this would all be possible? In all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The difference between now and when this takes place, is that Jesus has brought peace horizontally across the earth. And this is total peace. This is perfect peace. Don't be tempting snakes when you leave here today, okay? Don't go get a baby cow and put them next to a lion and give them some grain and be like, hey, let's just see what happens. I heard about this in church. It's got to happen right now. No, not yet. But it will. There will be total perfect peace horizontally between all of creation, between man and animal, man and man, animal and animal, animal and man, total perfect peace. This is exactly what we have to look forward to in the Prince of Peace, but it's not just horizontal peace. There is a vertical aspect, and this has happened. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So now this, this is total peace. And this is total peace where it counts, not between us and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, but this is total peace between us and God. We have been made right with God. There is total peace, perfect peace vertically because he was pierced for our transgressions. That means that he took our place on the cross. Any transgression that we had, he bore it and he died with it so that we could be forgiven of it. He took our sin and in place he gave us his righteousness so that we could be made right with God. So how do we experience this perfect peace? How do we experience this all-around peace? We see that in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of Emmanuel, the promise of God with us, took our broken pieces and brings about perfect peace between us and God. Therefore, since we have been justified, we are justified by Jesus in his death on the cross for us. We have perfect peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to call him Lord? This means that you call Jesus your Lord. It means that he is your master. It means that the things in your life that you want to do, you lay down to him and you say, no, not my way, but your way. Less of me, Jesus, more of you. You want to experience the peace of Jesus? You've got to give your life over to Jesus. And the only way you can do that is to put your faith in him. We put our faith in Jesus. We are justified by our faith through his work on the cross to save us. You see, we are sinful people. We are deserving of the wrath of God. And God cannot be with us because we are sinful people, but Jesus made us clean. And so when God looks down at us, when we have put our faith in Jesus, in being justified 
by him. He doesn't see sinful creation. No, he sees his son hanging on a cross. He sees his blood that covers us. He sees that we have been justified by the work of his son. So if you want that true, that perfect vertical peace, you've got to put your faith in the one that would govern You've got to put your faith in the one that would lead. You've got to make him Lord of your life. And I don't know where you are this morning. And maybe God is calling you into relationship with him. Part of that is putting your faith in him. Part of that is asking for forgiveness of those sins that he made possible, that he gave you the opportunity to do so. And part of that is making him Lord, following him without a doubt. Our God made many great promises. Great promises require great fulfillment, and in Jesus, our God greatly fulfilled them. Let's put our trust in him as he governs, as he leads us. Let's pray.